right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to see you all. Welcome to our, to our church. If you're, if you're new especially or, or tuning in from home for the first time, welcome to Hiawatha. Glad to have you guys with us today. Happy New Year, as, as Leah said earlier as well. Hope your um, Christmas and New Year's was, was restful and, um, and full of uh, fun, albeit uh, global pandemic version uh, 2020. So, but uh, praise God for a new year. Um, we are going to dive back into 2 Corinthians today. We took a break last week. A lot of you guys know that uh, for a uh, kind of a Christmas-themed sermon. But we're going to dive back into 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24 today. If you uh, want to turn there in a Bible you have or a phone app, uh, that would be great. This will be on screen in a minute, uh, per the usual. Uh, but remember, we are um, kind of halfway now in the series, a little bit over halfway. We'll finish up at the end of February, so um, we're getting there now. This is one of the longer letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote. Uh, if you are new to the New Testament or the Bible just in general, it's been a while since maybe you've read this letter. Uh, it is uh, one of the 13 letters Paul wrote to the churches. We have been operating off the premise that these are letters ultimately that uh, Jesus wrote to us, that God wrote to us. And, and we actually see that in the way Paul writes, talking about his letters as though they're of the Spirit, that they're written by the Spirit, not of ink. That was back in chapter 3. Um, the way Paul talks about himself, I'll talk about this today here as well to remind you guys of this, but the way Paul talks about himself as an apostle, also one who suffers for and loves the churches deeply, he uh, just oozes Christ. He uh, typifies him in word and deed and suffering and characteristic, and so we're seeing him, uh, our Savior, in his, uh, in his words as well. Uh, but contextually, this letter is just, is just it's one, of the, one of the letters of the first century that were written to the churches uh, about Christian living, about the gospel, about remembrance, about what it means to assemble in the name of the Lord and to love each other and to advance God's kingdom in different ways through word and deed. Uh, the list goes on. There, there's a, a lot of things that kind of constitute these letters, uh, but they are in many ways uh, the most explicit uh, sort of... Um, uh, gospel uh, explanations or, uh, or presentations that we have in the Bible because of how, they, how much they drill into uh, explicitity in terms of uh, what the gospel is and, and what the church is and so forth. So uh, in that sense, it's been a lot of fun. Hope you guys have been enjoying it, learning a lot. There's so much more to say, I, I could say, about the letter. But let's just dive in to chapter 8 today. We're right in the middle of chapter 8. Been kind of in a mini-series on uh, generosity towards other Christians. This is week two of three. And so I'll recap some of that after I read here, but let's, uh, let's start by reading from verses 16. Again, we're going through 24 today. So verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us by this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever before, or ever because of his, his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. 
So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. All right, so a little bit of context here in terms of what's going on. I was briefly mentioning this a second ago, but Paul has been raising money from the wealthier Gentile or mostly predominantly non-Jewish churches in Asia Minor and beyond, churches that he had helped to start years prior, in order to give to the, relatively speaking, poor Jewish churches of Jerusalem as a sign of love, a sign of unity, a sign of brotherhood, and he says goodwill here, but a sign of brotherhood in the faith. And so uh, this, this ministry comes up in other letters as well, as well as in the book of Acts, so some of you might be aware of this, but it actually is a pretty big deal in Paul's letters and just historically and contextually in the experience of the churches in the first few decades after Christ rose from the dead and ascended uh, into heaven. So there are richer churches, poorer churches. Paul is a Jewish man, of course, as well, but he's just trying to uh, kind of serve as a bridge between these two ethnically uh, different churches, uh, but, but uh, raising money from these richer churches to give to churches in harder times. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about this as well. It starts off in uh, the earlier parts of chapter 8. We talked about how Paul grounds this ministry in the gospel itself. That's the most important thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I think we said that um, it is the most important thing Paul says at all in the first 15 verses is that he grounds this act of grace. This, he calls it the act of grace, but this ministry of some Christians giving financially and sacrificing for other Christians in the gospel itself. And so in verse 9, he says, You guys know this, Christians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich because he was the Son of God, he had everything, yet for your sake he became poor. Not just in his life, but he became impoverished on the cross when he gave up everything. He spent everything, even his own life, for the sake of, of you, spiritually poor sinners. And so he spiritualizes the notion. He talks about finance, essentially, and money and generosity in spiritual terms. And he says, you guys know that. You know the grace, this act of grace of God that makes you who you are now as Christians. Your church exists because he died for your sins. So in and through that, remember that. Remember Jesus. Remember this gospel then give out of that remembrance. Embody the act of grace that God showed us by loving other Christians who are more needy. That's essentially what he's been saying, or what he did say in the first 15 verses and what he picks up on and builds off of into this passage this week. He also said last week in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove that your love is genuine. So, this is not a command, he says. This is an opportunity for you to show genuine love. So we talked about how, how the law or commandments in general or just the principle of someone saying to you, you must do this, actually precludes true acts of generosity because that would take the love and the choice out of it. Paul wanted them to give based on how the gospel moved in their hearts. He wanted them to actually believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He wanted that to wreck and rebuild them, to humble them, and then, uh, as, as the Bible says elsewhere, kind of exalt them spiritually before God through that humility because of how much they trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He wanted that to produce the generosity, not a, um, an impulse, not an obligation. 
And so on a broader level, this is why as Christians we talk about, because the Bible does, this movement from law to grace, this progression from a covenant of commandments to now this epoch of love and grace through Christ that we find ourselves in. If I, so if I were to tell my wife, Aletha, and our anniversary is in two days, if I were to tell her that I got you a gift because someone told me to, uh, that would take all the, that would kind of diffuse the romance, right? Like, I got you this gift. Yeah, someone told me to. Isn't that great? I probably wouldn't go over as well, right? It's, it's that kind of idea. The law cannot produce love. Only the gospel can do that. This is what we see in the Bible. Only grace. It's only being wrecked and remade through Jesus' death and resurrection. That does not mean that it's wrong to be told to do things, obviously, at times. But this is about proper motivation. It's why Jesus says in John 13, 34, A new command I give you, love one another, he says to his disciples. And yet he ties that to his own love for us. He's hours away from being arrested, and so he ties that to his love he's about to show his people and says, in the spirit of that, love others. In the spirit of that, die for others and sacrifice for others, especially other Christians. So in the spirit of that, then, we can say to each other, love one another, and we do, this is part of what we've been saying these past couple of weeks, is, is love one another, Christians, and love other Christians outside of the church as well, but do so out of the gospel, out of this greater love that we didn't deserve. And the more we realize how undeservedly we were loved, the more we will love others. That's just the simple kind of math uh, to the matter, is the more we understand how undeservedly we were loved by God, the more that we will want to play, kind of pay that forward or play it forward, just demonstrate it forward uh, to others in our church family. And again, the law can't do that. This is what the Bible means when it says in Romans 7, we don't live anymore in the way of the written code, speaking of the law, but by the Spirit. The New Testament's not shy about this. It's partly why I think this chapter and this, even this verse in 8.8 exists. It's, it, it is there to show us what true Christian spirituality looks like. Not just kind of broad speaking love for the church, that's, that's a huge part of it, but, but led by the Spirit living. Uh, out of the gospel rather than by rote obedience uh, to the law, as if our arms are being twisted into good works. All right, then in today's passage, that was all last week or two weeks ago, in today's passage, it's kind of an odd passage, Paul is talking about his co-workers, his cohort, essentially, who will help him deliver this financial gift to Jerusalem, uh, which is, of course, this is at this, from this vantage point, it's still future, but he's about to, he's about to go and bring this money to poor Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So here, uh, Titus again is mentioned, as he was a couple of weeks ago, or has been throughout this book, by name. Uh, he's a messenger between Paul and the Corinthians, remember? So he's kind of this key figure. They know him well, and, and again, he's mentioned here by name. But two others are mentioned as well. A brother, a Christian known for his preaching of the gospel, and then a second unnamed brother, in the faith as well. And it was important for Paul to mention all this to ensure the integrity. He's doing a couple of things. He's ensuring the integrity of the transmission of the gift that uh, it'd be like, uh, you know, like a charity saying to you when you gave to them, uh, 100% of what you give is going to go to this cause, right? So it's kind of like Paul essentially saying that. More than one person's bringing this gift to Jerusalem. Uh, he's ensuring the integrity of the transmission of it and so forth that all the money would actually make it there. So that, that's one piece to the mentioning of these other brothers who will be a part of the band of, of people bringing it to Jerusalem. 
but also just logistically and kind of like in a protective sense, having a band of men carrying the gift would help protect against robbers uh, as well. And so there's kind of that piece too, secondarily. But past that, remember, context sets the stage for the play and for the actors of theology to shine. All right, so context, we've been saying this for the past few weeks, context is important, but it sets the stage for the better thing. It sets the stage for the play and for the actors of the gospel, the actors of theology to shine, and that's truly what these passages uh, have to, to mean for us. And it's precisely actually what we're going to see in today and into next week, week kind of three of three of this mini-series uh, as, as well. So, but for today, uh, three sentences and clauses in particular, I think, stick out. So we'll focus on those today. There's lots more going on in this passage. Like I said, it's kind of an odd passage. It's almost like an excursus between the more explicit theology of, of last week or two weeks ago, uh, week one of this mini-series, and then next week, uh, you'll kind of see that a little bit today and next week, but, um, but it's still rich in theology. There's a lot, lots we learn here, and we'll, so we'll focus on um, a few of these interesting uh, sides that Paul makes uh, here today about his team, about his friends, and about this uh, band of brothers that cares deeply for the church, and uh, it may be specifically for, well, the Corinthians, of course, but for these poor Christians in Jerusalem as well. All right, so that kind of recaps two weeks ago, because a lot of you weren't here for that, uh, but um, also it kind of summarizes uh, what's going on contextually today too. All right, so here's the first piece. Uh, when Paul mentions that, that I think sticks out, maybe it did for you, maybe it doesn't, but when I was reading this, I thought, this, that really sticks out. It doesn't really sound like Paul to say that. So we're going to look at this today. Verse 18, Paul says, one of these unnamed people uh, who's going to be a part of this uh, act of grace, bringing this money to Jerusalem. He talks about not just this brother, but he kind of identifies him as one who is famous among all the churches for preaching the gospel. This brother is famous among all the churches, in verse 18, all the churches for uh, preaching the gospel. Kind of an odd inclusion. If you've read uh, the New Testament letters before, read Paul before, you might think, doesn't really sound like Paul to say that. And in fact, we don't see him talk like this uh, elsewhere, at least in these explicit of, of terms. And the guy's not named either, either, which is interesting. Some believe it to be Barnabas, one of Paul's friends, mentioned in Acts, but we just don't know for sure. Uh, but a couple of just quick things here that we can, I think, pull from this uh, seemingly kind of uh, a side-like uh, statement that Paul makes here is, uh, first of all, just really simply, preaching the gospel for Paul, and I think for us too, uh, but I think for his theology in the letter, uh, for all of us, just broad scale, preaching the gospel, heralding good news, talking about Jesus, speaking on God's behalf, that is an important thing, just generally, but in the life of the church as well. Otherwise, why would he mention this at all, right? Preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and I, I, don't, and I mean that is not just teaching facts about theology, though that's very important too, but preaching, heralding good news is, was here, and, and still is today, contrary to what you might hear from some, is a pillar to the church's uh, greater health. Uh, we believe as Christians, God still speaks, right? He's not silent. He's, he's speaking way more than we think he is uh, to us, and preaching helps us to remember that. He has much to say to us, much to reveal, and biblical Christ-centered preaching is one of the major ways he does that, because Christ is God's final word to us, a word he keeps on speaking, but, but this final, repeated, 
gospel song he keeps uh, saying and playing over and over again nonetheless. So to enjoy preaching or, or to get something out of it, no matter how small, or to value it in a church setting or as individuals, is to value hearing from God. It's to receive from Him. And that's why Paul is, is saying this here. One reason why he's saying this here is to emphasize it, to, to upplay its role in the church. And interestingly for Paul, if you remember, this was not one of Paul's major gifts. Paul is uh, not shy about saying, I'm not that great a preacher. I'm not a strong orator. And actually, if you remember, some of the Corinthians, um, this is one of their sins against Paul, one of their displays of immaturity in the letter is they uh, were distrusting of Paul. They were kind of exposing this weakness of Paul. They were um, unappreciating this element of who he was as their, as their pa- kind of pastor from afar in that he was not a good speaker. He was not a good preacher. He was not an orator. He was a great writer, and we see that in these letters, uh, but he was not a great preacher. So for Paul here to emphasize something he wasn't good at is kind of interesting as well. But, but that aside, he's not downplaying this, obviously. He's upplaying it. He's upplaying preaching. He's emphasizing. He's highlighting the gifting in this other brother and preaching's role in general in the building up of the church. And, and not just what, I, like what I'm doing here right now, like in a formal sense, but um, any kind of like proclamative formal or informal uh, teaching of God's word that becomes an extension of God's speaking in the life of the church. All right, so much more I could say about that, but I just think that's important to say uh, as we, maybe, maybe some of you guys struggle with that. It's what is preaching? What is the church? What are we doing here? Why do we centralize the service around the proclaimed word and care so much about the Bible and these things? Uh, part of it is because of just kind of passing verses like this where the church was built around it. Not just in Acts, but in these letters where you see uh, the, the church respond to God speaking through, through preachers. All right? The second thing is, uh, Paul is unafraid here to take the spotlight off of himself and to put it on someone else. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing here. For just a Christian man, broken guy, some of you guys know Paul's story. Uh, he's been very humbled in life, but he gives us a good example here to follow of highlighting other people's gifts and their strengths and what God is doing in their life uh, so that the spotlight comes a bit more off of him and onto God and um, in love than to other people. So know the guy, the, the guy he's talking about here is not named, but maybe that's also a part of the point. You know, sometimes we can put too much emphasis on a preacher or the style of or personality of, of, a, of a leader, him or herself, but that's not the focus here. Uh, preaching itself, apart from the unnamed messenger, is what I think Paul is focusing on. So uh, it kind of reminded me of this... Um, some of you guys heard this before, but this kind of famous thing that Count Zinzendorf said in the mid-1700s, he said that, um, or he said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's a great mantra for life. Preach the gospel, die, and just be forgotten. Uh, because it's not about us. We are about pushing the fame of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. Uh, the gospel saves us from being kings and queens of our little universes, small and pathetic as they are, and takes us off the throne, puts God back on in his rightful place, uh, a one who loved us to, de- to hell and back. And we change, right? We shift and we become worshipers again, creatures. You don't have to be our own gods. 
And I think uh, this is a great mantra, you know, leader or not, preacher or not, uh, it doesn't matter. Just to preach the gospel, die, and just be okay being forgotten because we have our reward. Jesus is our reward. So Paul is a uh, great example of this. I think this unnamed brother, because he's unnamed and, and not highlighted here as, you know, as this, as this named guy, is um, an example of this as well. He's doing just that. He's preaching the gospel and he's being forgotten. We don't know who it was, but um, kind, of a, kind of a cool thing. So Paul also, a great example here. Um, I, a few years ago, I came across this, um, I think it was a tweet or something. I don't know where I got this, but, and I don't have a reference. I'll just say this is not for me. Uh, but it was a short little uh, pithy thing on what good leadership was that I love so much. I actually printed it out and put it on my desk. It's still there, uh, but I put it there a few years ago. But um, it was basically a little, little ditty here on healthy leadership, and it says this. Share more of the responsibility, take less credit, rest often, eat well, laugh a lot, run from the spotlight, pray all the time, go home, and hold no grudges. Hashtag healthy leadership. So just love that. There's, of course, more to say about leadership than that, but I, I think it resonates a lot with how Paul is talking here. Not about himself, but about others. When he talks about himself, he talks about his weaknesses, highlights other people, makes it about God and others, um, rests well, you know, and just takes the spotlight off himself, gives credit to others, um, and other things here, of course, I'm adding, but um, I think that's really helpful. So for whatever that's worth, I'll, I'll share that with you guys too, and to all, all of you who are leaders, but if you're not as well too, this is just um, healthy, humble, gospel-centered living that receives from God and, um, and puts a spotlight onto other people. All right, we'll move into our second clause now, our sentence, which is, <clears throat> or actually it's clause, uh, Titus went to you of his own accord. It's actually mid-sentence, I just pulled that, but Titus went to you, so Titus is named, uh, Titus went to you, he's talking about Titus as a messenger, remember, so Paul sent Titus to collect this money and to bring a letter and minister in different ways as well, but part of it was as long as he's there, um, you know, and, and you have this relationship with him that's positive, he's wanting to collect money uh, from them for this act of grace to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. All right. So remember, if you've been here for any part of this series, and I, I sort of mentioned this earlier a little bit too, but we have been working from the premise that Paul and Titus and his team, but Paul and Titus specifically in many ways, exemplify and embody the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And I mean, not just their character traits when I say that, but even their physical actions when they suffer or when they move towards the Corinthians in some way, literally traveling towards them, or we talked about that a few weeks ago, or when they respond graciously to a church that's sitting against them. We talked about that piece. Now that exemplifies Jesus as well, how he responds by grace when we sin against him. The list goes on. But when we apply this way of thinking here to this passage, Titus then is not just one who went to the Corinthians of his own accord, but this means that Christ is this way too towards us. He's in Titus. Titus is one who was sent from Paul, but Jesus is one who was sent from God to us and who came to us, quotes, of his own accord, meaning he wanted to. He wanted to get to us. He wasn't forced or obligated into it. 
He wanted to see us. He wanted to save us. He wanted to minister to us. He wanted to encourage us. He wanted to speak truth to us. He wanted to unclutch our hands from our works and our trophies so we could cling to God. But he wanted to come to us. He wanted to save. And I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a minute. But this, this also means that he didn't just come, speaking of Jesus now, he didn't just come to earth of his own accord. It also means that he died of his own accord. This verse actually, kind of interestingly, um, I'm going to go into some uh, kind of a theological bunny trail here for a second. A lot of you guys are aware that some of you aren't. Um, but this verse actually debunks the idea that some hold to, usually apostates, people in, in the way or in the process of leaving the faith or leaving the church on some level. This kind of becomes the first domino of sorts that tips over in a lot of ways. Um, and I won't go into that in full this morning, but this happens all the time. I mean, Peter, we've talked about this a lot, right? Just seeing a lot of people that were strong in the faith, influencers, uh, Christian leaders that were kind of well-known uh, musicians, uh, preachers alike, uh, different people who have now left the faith or at least embraced extremely liberal, way out there forms of Christianity that are not even Christianity anymore. But this issue kind of becomes for a lot of people um, this first domino that tips over and it kind of, it, it revolves around disgust over the cross. Just disgust over why did Jesus really have to go through that and, and um, is that really the center? And the way the church has historically formulated it, is that really true? And kind of this fresh poking at it. And one of the phrases that's kicked around, I actually heard this phrase first in seminary. Um, when was that? 17, 18 years ago? Um, 16 years ago, something like that. So it's been around a long time, but it's, it gets kicked around today as well. A lot, some of you might be aware of this, but the phrase is divine child abuse. And this idea that God pouring out his wrath on his son is, um, is offensive, it's gross, it's weird, it's, um, it can't be the center of Christianity. There, there must be another way to formulate what it was all about. Uh, and there are many things that kind of revolve around that, orbit around that. But anyway, this verse though I think actually in a way, and many other things do too, but this verse debunks that idea that, that some hold to that says Jesus bearing the wrath of God in our place is akin to divine child abuse. Um, and so, um, it, it's, uh, and like I was saying, it's not uncommon to see this today, but Jesus, but the, the truth is that Jesus actually did die to save us from the wrath of God. He did suffer uh, the outpouring of God's wrath on himself in our place. It was the idea of, um, part of what we understand with what happened on the cross is that God's wrath was displaced from us. It passed over us. This is the Passover idea, if you're familiar with that idea in the Bible. It passed over us and went, because it, it went on to him. And so pick your biblical phrase, whether it be propitiatory sacrifice or Passover lamb or cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or the idea of Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath or the idea that Jesus became sin for us. I mean, pick your phrase. The list could go on here as well, but those are some big ones. All of those ideas point to how God poured out judgment on his son in his son's humanness, because his son became human, right? So we would, as human beings, be spared. But here's the idea, kind of going back to number two here. 
This is not divine child abuse because of two great facts. One, Jesus is God's son, so he is God himself, and not to mention a grown man. And two, Jesus went to the cross, quotes, quoting from today's passage, of his own accord. Jesus wanted to go. He was not forced in an abusive manner into it. He went of his own accord, like Titus went to the church of his own accord as a spirit-filled human being. God, or Christ, God's Son, went to the cross because he wanted to. And these might sound like obvious things to some of you, but it's, it's apparently not because of how many uh, people uh, sometimes, or it can seem, uh, toss around and flirt with and start to taste this heretical idea of, of divine child abuse. I think Matthew 26 is interesting. This is right before Jesus is arrested and Peter pulls out a sword to try to fight the arresters. And he cuts off one of their ears. Remember that whole fiasco? Well, Jesus says, put down your sword, Peter. Put it back in its place. Are you not aware that I can call on my Father, God, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled and say that it's my death must happen in this way. And I like this uh, passage in relation to talking about this idea of atonement because you, you can see even here, per Jesus' own words, the willingness of the Father to spare Jesus if he were to ask him. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't ask for angelic help, right? He lets himself be arrested, which leads to him Letting himself be crucified, which is where he willingly is poured out upon the Father for us. Because we were in such a terrible place with God, we were grieving him and offending him so much, we had sinned so much against him that the cross had to happen in that way. He had to be poured out upon. And not just like by our sin in that way, but the wrath of God itself fell upon him for those six hours he was dying on Good Friday. But, but here's the truth. To circle back now to 2 Corinthians 8. Jesus died for you guys of his own accord. He died for you by grace. Not because he had to, nor was he keeping with any law that told him he had to, even though he was filling, fulfilling the scriptures. It wasn't by law or by obligation or by an arm-twisting condition that he was doing it but rather by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And, and we know that grace, we know this in a, in a human way, I would say. We know this from the Bible, too, in a divine way, that grace and love and choice and willingness always go together, right? And so if you take out willingness, it messes with the equation. But grace and love and choice and willingness go together. Uh, Jesus was God he was not just a human being who was um, abused or forced into this. He was God himself who willingly went to the cross to bear his Father's wrath in our place. And, and so the Father and the Son then scheme together to save us from our sins. This is not um, a one-way thing, but as Christians we believe in the Trinity, right? The Trinity scheme together, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but here the Father and the Son scheme together to save us from our sins. And it looks like the sun bleeding out on that cross 
for people who could never, ever, ever get to him on their own. And that leads me to this last part, which is from verse 24, where Paul says to Titus, or to the Corinthians rather, give proof of your love. And here, of course, uh, the proof he's talking about initially has to do with a financial gift to these poor churches in Jerusalem. That's, that's what he's saying, is show your love or give evidence of the fact that you're saved, that your heart's been won over by a God who's been extremely generous to you. And we know, like we, like we were just saying, love and sacrifice go together. So this here, I would say, on one level, this whole passage, and into two weeks ago as well, the first part of chapter 8, this is a call for Christians to demonstrate love for other believers sacrificially through financial gifts or other types of sacrifice. Like if we were to pull a principle or if we were to see an example to follow in this passage, that's what it would be. It would be this actually happened in history. This is a good thing. This is a showing of unity and love. It flows from the generous gospel of God that we all have eaten and drunken into our souls. It flows from that. And I would say for us at Hiawatha Church, whatever church you're from, if you're visiting, that would be the principle on a human-based level to pull. It would, it would be to say every day, how can I love another Christian in my church? Or another church elsewhere in the city or the world. Uh, how, can I, how can I show my like-mindedness, my love for other children of God? having the same father with them, so I'm a brother or sister with them, how can I show love for them through a financial gift or another type of sacrifice? That, that is a legitimate, wonderful takeaway from a passage like this. And I would say, too, also to pray for help. If you don't feel, like, if you read a passage like this and you think, I don't feel that kind of love for Christians, um, that is actually, uh, I, was, I almost said good, but I don't mean good, I mean, like, Good place to be in the sense where you could say, um, you can pray, right? Uh, if you look at verse 16, I love how verse 16 starts. This could almost be its own sermon. But in verse 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus to care for other Christians. Isn't that amazing? Where did Titus's love for other Christians come from? Decidedly not from him. Even as a Christian, we are not good people who are identified by God to extend His goodness in our own goodness into the world, but rather to depend on Him for the gift of good works. He gives it. And so if you don't feel love for other Christians, or this is difficult or hard, pray. Say, God, put into my heart more love for your people. Put into my heart more love for Hiawatha Church. Put into my heart love for others in my community I'm so different from and hard, kind of hard to love because so, we're so different. Put that into my heart because I don't have it. I'm not good. I'm not a good person. That is a wonderful prayer, a distinctly Christian posture towards God in the spirit of what's happening here in Corinth. And in the heart of Titus, a man just like us, a sinner, saved by grace, not through his good works. All right, so that's one takeaway. In a wider sense, though, again, and as we've been saying, I'll say it again, this has to do more with God. 
and to use the, the same words here in verse 24, this has to do with God proving to us that he loves us by giving us the gift of, of his son. And maybe that's a surprise to some of you to hear that. Um, if it is, I hope it's a good surprise. Uh, but, but the theme of proving love is all over the Bible. The fact that it's in the Bible at all might be a surprise. And I mean this not just on the human level, but on the divine level. God cares about proving his love to you. That is, at the center of who God is, according to the Bible, the center of who he is, he cares about proving, not just loving you, but proving that he loves you. He's not just loving, he's a love prover. And proof, I think that word, that idea implies a couple of things. One, it implies that there is a mystery that needs to be solved, or there is a legal case that needs to be argued for. That's how we use the word proof sometimes, right? Uh, it implies that anyway. And I think in the Bible, you, you see then Jesus on the other side of that question, the other side of that tension. Uh, like, he's the resolution, in other words. He's the solution. In Acts 1-3, after Jesus' is suffering, Jesus presented himself to people, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, right? This is, who, this is how God operates. And of course, in that, he's showing, I loved you to the point of going to the grave and back. And look, it's my scars. Um, it's actually my body. I loved you so much, I went to hell and I immersed myself in it and I came up to, to get you and to rescue you. And so re relatedly then, second, and secondarily, proof also implies doubt. Um, the, the, the words here... In 2 Corinthians 8, and I'll read some other things here, but um, the words give proof of your love, or the idea of proving love, are here for those of you who doubt. All of us who doubt. All, we all doubt. Uh, but these words are here for, for us who have doubts. Uh, in, in John 20, 27, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said to Thomas, one of his disciples, who questioned if he's actually risen from the dead at that point, he was doubting. Jesus appears to him and says to Thomas, put your fingers here see and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side where, where he was pierced. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And look at Romans 5.8. God shows or proves his love for us in this fact right here. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how he wants to show you his love? prove it to you this, that this is how much he loves? Or in 2 Timothy 2, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. This is, this is adultery terminology. If, if we commit adultery spiritually, he does not divorce us. He stays faithful. And back to Romans 5, he loves us so much, he gave his one and only son up. He gave him up for you and me. So in all those things, he proves love, right? He wants you to be proven of his love because he knows you will not believe it. As Christians, I mean, you will not believe that he loves you. Almost every day, you, I, every day we will wrestle with this. It is the big, one of the biggest battles we will fight is we will not actually believe it or we'll struggle to or we won't believe it as much as we could. 
And so the story of the Bible is one of immense, ongoing love proof every day. And, and this is, and, and by the way, this is simply, uh, if you think about it, uh, and if you are, um, even if you're not too, but if you're a student of other religions, um, this is a simply unique among the pantheon of other, other false gods thing. That no other religion has a god like this. Uh, in fact, you could say other religions have less loving gods, if not flat out hateful gods, because those gods haven't lost anything for us. They haven't sacrificed, meaning they haven't loved they're a billion miles away, not doing anything, but waiting for us to ascend to, to, to them or him or it or whatever. But Christianity is different. Not only is our God different, but our gospel, our salvation is different. It's about him dying for us versus us, versus us harming ourselves for him. And I would say daily our spirituality is different too. I, you know, um, I love this verse and this idea applied to God. Because I think part of what it means to live daily as a Christian and to grow and mature and to be sanctified is to believe that God seeks to prove his love for you every single day. Every day. So this is not just a way we understand what happened on the cross, but we understand every day God in his love is seeking to prove that through his word or through the love of another Christian and how they demonstrate it. He's seeking to prove it to me. He wants me to know how much he loved for me. And I, I think that's just an invitation for us to think, do we believe that? Is that? Or is that something we practice in our brains and with our gospel-facing faith? You know, again, like he's not, like I was saying about other religions, he's not sitting on a throne a billion miles away waiting for you to prove your love to him. By the way, the Bible never says, ever, prove your love to God. Rest in that, you guys. The Bible never says, prove your love to God. But it does say, God seeks to prove his love to us. This doesn't mean we should not reciprocate love to God. That it can't be demon or shown or, 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 or that, that, that worship's not a key component of gathering, anything like that. But the idea of proof is a burden that God bears, not us. All right? So the Bible never says it. But instead, it says he's near to us. It says he's right in our hearts, right? It says there's no more separation. And, and proof of his love shown fully on the cross resonates or should resonate every day. Um, we should see his scars every day. Communion, which we'll take in a second, reminds us of this every Sunday when we see his blood again. And we drink it. Um, again, when we're good, when we're bad, when we're sick, when we're healthy, when we feel distant, when we feel close, this is what we need to think about. A God who in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 8.24 wants us to know his love and then to live out of that love by loving other believers sacrificially. So the story spreads like yeast throughout the whole lump of dough, as Jesus says elsewhere. All right, so, so I'll, um, I'll just close with this. Uh, since it's a new year, um, we sometimes do like a New Year's kind of like a, a visioning sermon. We're not doing that this year, of course, um, because we're in our series. But um, it, it's 2021, 
obviously, uh, we uh, have gone through a really hard year. Uh, we don't know exactly what lies ahead for us. Uh, we, we're praying and hoping for a lot of normality to return uh, this year. But, but I, I would say this to you as, as one of your pastors. Um, go easy on the New Year's resolutions. Uh, and instead, remember more that God has resolved to save you. Uh, that he has resolved to prove his love to you over and over and over again. And that's really all that truly matters. Uh, no darkness will ever put out that light. And so, um, so I would say, think this year about basking in that light. Basking in the light of Jesus Christ. Loving your church really well. And then together, um, let's move forward uh, in, into this year, Lord willing, into uh, hopefully better days. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much for this passage. There's a lot here. It's kind of an odd one. Thank you, God, for how you whisper and even shout and call out to us yourself and your gospel through the words and actions of Paul and Titus. Thank you for proving your love to us and thank you for coming to us of your own accord, not based on a law or something above you that forced you to do it, but genuine generosity and love comes apart from law and from the heart. And thank you that you are the ultimate, best, and actually true and kind of the ultimate example of this in the universe and in all of history will be you. All this is about you, God. It's less about us than we, we might think. Uh, thank you for that. Encourage us, save us, uh, renew us, and, uh, and keep, us, keep us well this year. In Christ we pray, amen.